Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The History Channel Original Podcast. Picture this. School bell rings and it's lunchtime. You've already spent all morning in the classroom, learning long division, and you're in the mood for a treat. You open up your lunchbox and you're greeted by something sweet and delicious. A Little Debbie snack cake. Nothing better, right? Nothing with Little Debbie cakes or any of the snack cakes is beneath me because I have inhaled pretty much all of them. And you wouldn't just eat them at school. For a lot of us, Little Debbie snack cakes immediately bring back our childhoods. Maybe it's visiting grandma's house and getting one of those treats, their peanut butter wafer bars, honey buns, or their signature oatmeal cream pie. The thing with snack cakes, I mean, just the nostalgia that's baked into every single one of them. I mean, I have memories based around snack cakes that date back to my great-grandmother. Just going, you know, as a child, going to her house and her opening her door and just giving us a little Debbie cake. But the very concept of the snack cake, a miniature baked good in plastic wrap, was once a very novel concept. And that concept, it all traces back to a failing family business in Chattanooga, Tennessee. This is The Food That Built America, stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll tell the tale of a small cake with a big story, tracing the McKee family's rise from small beginnings to a multi-million dollar company. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. The story of these famous snack cakes traces back to a young married couple named Ruth and Odie McKee. They were college sweethearts, met at Southern Junior College in Tennessee. These two couldn't have been more opposite. Odie was a businessman, came from a family that worked hard, says Christopher Erskine, an assistant professor of secondary history and social studies education at Athens State University. A lot of Americans, particularly in the South, came from farming backgrounds. And Odie McKee is adopted at a very young age, and he struggles. His family struggles. Things could be challenging for Odie McKee. And he doesn't read. He doesn't read well. He later discovers, diagnosed with dyslexia. He stutters, and so he's got a lot of hurdles to overcome. But he's full of energy. He's always running places. He's full of ideas. And he's a really good, he's kind of a natural salesman. And his wife, Ruth, she was soft-spoken but it was clear she was methodical and meticulous about business and good instincts. She was patient, she was quiet, and I think she, it probably would have taken someone like Ruth to be married to Odie. So it, it, Ruth was, she was a guiding hand, but she was often in the backseat of these decisions. Different as they were, the two were a solid pair. As soon as they graduated in the late 1920s, the two clearly had some ambition and drive, but they didn't always hit home runs. Ruth is a teacher, and she finds a job teaching. 
OD is not happy. He's working long hours for little pay and in really a lot less pay than Ruth is making. And so he wants to move to different places and wants Ruth to leave her teaching job, and she does. To make ends meet, OD sold cars. He was a farm manager. He delivered cakes. They saved the money and they had their, their money in the bank, but the bank goes under. The depression hits and the bank goes under. They lose everything. And so a couple of years later, now he has kids and he's still trying to find steady work. And he has a cow and a car, a Whippet car, a 1928 model Whippet. And his, his second child is born. And that child, the doctor wants, of course, to charge money for, for delivering that baby. And OD doesn't have any money. He has a cow and a car. And he gives the doctor the choice. I can pay you, but it'll have to be either the cow or the car. And the doctor chooses the cow. In the early 1930s, they used their car, the one the doctor hadn't chosen, as collateral and bought a shop called Jack's Cookie Company in Chattanooga. It was a huge risk, Erskine says. This is a struggling small businessman at the tail end of the Depression who is doing everything he can to survive. And the bakery gave O.D. an opportunity to experiment. O.D. wasn't just experimenting with running a business. He was experimenting with the product, too. So when O.D. and Ruth McKee bought this bakery, it was just hard cookies that were being produced. O.D. McKee comes in and begins to evolve the product, which is very characteristic of O.D. McKee, and begins to experiment, puts cream in between the cookies. With the cream in between the cookies, the cookies became softer. Instead of having two hard shells on the outside, this was a chewier option. And he realizes that he's hit on something. Sounds like Little Debbie Oatmeal Cream Pies. End of story, right? Not really. For a time, Jack's Cookie Company did so well that Odie wanted to expand the business. He needed help, so he invited his father-in-law to join the business. But his father-in-law didn't share Odie's view on expansion. He wanted to stay small. So the two agreed to split the business. And in 1937, Odie and Ruth moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they opened Jack's Cookie Company of Charlotte. Business was going well until World War II rationing forced business expenses to skyrocket. Odie's debt grew so that by 1950, he was forced to sell 51% of the bakery to three men, Rex Calicult, Leon Bishop, and John Barton, to get a cash influx and the company out of debt. Odie and Ruth were now beholden to the other partners in the company, Calicut, Barton, and Bishop. And they now have control over what that product line is. And so O.D. McKee's signature product, the oatmeal cream pie, is on the chopping block here. The other partners decided they weren't all that thrilled about the concept of soft oatmeal cookie sandwiches. These three partners that own 51% of the company come in and they say, we don't want the oatmeal cookie to be soft. We want the oatmeal cookie to be hard and crisp. There was something else. One of the owners, Rex Calicut, basically wanted the name Jack's Cookies to use for himself. And certainly as a Jack's Cookies owner, Rex Calicut wants to monopolize that name. So Rex Calicut bought Odie McKee out for about $100,000, which was less than book value. You know, the equipment in the warehouse was worth more than what, than what Rex Calicut paid. And so that tells us something about the financial struggles that Ruth and Odie were having at that time. Ruth and Odie gave up the bakery, and for a while their cookie sandwiches, in 1951. I think it's a fair characterization to think about O.D. as a failed businessman by the late 1940s, early 1950s. 
until a silver lining emerged that same year. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. At this point, in the late 1940s, the McKees had faced a number of hurdles, including, of course, losing their bakery in North Carolina. That's when a silver lining emerged. Of course, it didn't look like a silver lining until much later. That's because Ruth's brother Cecil was in trouble. He'd been running his own family bakery business called King's Bakery in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But he was also ill, too ill to run his bakery. And so when Ruth and Odie come back to Chattanooga, they begin working for Ruth's brother, Cecil King. Before all this, after they'd sold the North Carolina bakery, Odie and Ruth had considered retiring, laying low. But King's Bakery would prove to be an opportunity for Odie. He wasn't really the kind of guy to just sit around and retire, sell the family business. He saw a chance to reinvent himself. And O.D. McKee has got too much energy, too much drive. He has to be tinkering with something all the time. And so I think O.D. was excited to go back and take over another bakery. Ruth may have been a little apprehensive, but if she was, she probably would have have channeled that by being a little more assertive with O.D. in the financial decisions that the bakery would make. So King's Bakery would continue as a family business, selling things like cookies and layered cakes, primarily to grocery stores. And in 1954, Odie and Ruth bought the bakery from Cecil Kirk. Around this time, Ruth brought her son Ellsworth to come in and look through the books. But when he did, he found a huge surprise. The company wasn't doing so hot. And this is where Ellsworth begins to, to analyze why are they not making a profit? This was the 1950s. People had money and were moving to the suburbs. The way Americans shop for food changed. This is the time when the supermarket really took off. Everything you needed was in one building, a one-stop shop. In 1950, 35% of all food was sold in America's 14,000 supermarkets. There were 6,000 national brands to choose from. That's a lot of brands. This is Brian Simon, a history professor at Temple University. Well, I mean, the key food change, and it cannot be exaggerated, in the 1950s as a supermarket. The supermarket changes the way people shop, it changes the food available, and it changes pricing, right? And think about it, most people shopped every day. 
If they didn't, they had really small kind of refrigeration. Why go to this highly specialized mom-and-pop bakery when you could just grab a loaf of bread at the supermarket? Because supermarkets were so front and center, McKee's bakery products were essentially sold to supermarkets in blank cake boxes. These are what are called private label products. So a private label is when, when a bakery, King's Bakery or McKee Bakery, makes a product and they will try to sell that product to all of the stores around them, whether that bread bakeries or grocery stores or whoever wants to buy the product, you know, commercially. And they will just put it in a box and, and they, they will either slap that label on the, the local bakery or, you know, grocery store label or the grocery store or bakery will slap their own label on it, but they get it in, in, a, in an empty box. It didn't really matter who McKee Bakery was. They were essentially an anonymous company simply selling the baked goods to grocery stores. There wasn't a chance to build any sort of name recognition or loyalty. The McKee Bakery is just a bakery that's selling to whoever will buy the product and put their own label on it. And they're losing money. And O.D. McKee does not want to drop this product. So for now, they didn't really have a brand. There was another reason profits had such a razor-thin margin. Layered cakes, specifically, were expensive to produce. It took a lot of work to wrap and box layered cake. And he begins to push to end the layer cake production line because, in his words, we were losing money on every single layer cake we were making. But despite all this, Odie was reluctant to scrap the layered cake, even though Ellsworth was pretty committed to the idea. And imagine, so Ellsworth is only like in his mid to late 20s at this point. And he's just a kid. You know, he, I mean, what does he know? <laughs> but Ellsworth knew what he was doing. In 1960, Odie came up with a big, well, a small idea. What if you made the cakes tiny, individually wrapped? It was a perfect chance for the oatmeal cream pies to shine. This tiny cake did well in a single-serve packaging. So the single-serve snack cake is a great financial decision because it's not as labor-intensive as wrapping or boxing a layer cake. Uh, so it's not your full cake, but it's your single-serve cake with a little frosting in the middle. Uh, it's meant to, to kind of mimic what a larger cake would be. It's just a single-serve. It made sense financially. Help the McKees reach their goals. They were losing money on the layered cakes. But they're making a lot of money on the 5 and 10-cent products. There was another reason these snack cakes did so well. Up until now... Baking had a big preservation issue, says baking expert Ashley Holt. That's always a struggle with baked goods. It has a very short shelf life if you want to use natural products. And if someone gets your cake on a third day and it's dry, they may not go back to give it a second shot. So you got to do whatever you can to keep it as fresh as possible. These snack cakes, on the other hand, were much easier to preserve. Before they came in, the cookies were not individually wrapped. They were, they were just put in a bag and they were sold in a bag. Uh, once they come in, they now have to bring in a wrapper that will wrap each of these individual cookies if they're cookies with cream in the middle. Unlike the layered cakes that needed to be shipped out the day of, the single-serving snacks could last longer when wrapped in plastic. And remember, plastics were a relatively new thing at the time. The birth of plastics really gave way to the development of packaged baked goods. Where they had a leg up is that he could distribute his product to further ends of the earth because it wasn't such precious shelf life. So going back a bit, by the late 1950s, everything was coming up roses for Odie and Ruth McKee. 
They had their small sandwich cookies and they had some ideas about how to distribute them to make some money. But what they didn't have was a way to expand. Now, around this time, Southern Missionary College, now known as Southern Adventist University, made the McKees an offer. Lease Odie and Ruth a space to use as a bakery. All they'd need in return was rent and jobs for their college students. And they begin doing the calculations for how much it would cost them to get a loan to build a new bakery in Chattanooga versus what they would pay Southern back annually to lease the bakery. And it was far cheaper to lease a bakery in Collegedale than it would be to get a loan and build a bakery in Chattanooga. And so they went back to Southern and said, um, yeah, we'll, we'll take your deal. So in 1957, construction began on McKee Bakery. It was a big moment for the couple. They were finally big enough to expand and build a new headquarters. In fact, they'd gone through a number of names through the course of their lives. But coming up with the right name would be the key to their wild success. But they still didn't have a strong brand. They were known as both King's and McKee's Bakery. So it's kind of in between because there's a period at which they begin calling themselves McKee, but they don't repaint the the King's trucks. And so they're producing kind of under both labels. And so that's a protracted, you know, that's not like an overnight thing. With their name finally on the building, they needed a new spin. Here's Christopher Erskine again. Most people, if you ask who were the McKee family, most people have no idea. And so it was really that, that branding in the 1960s that turned them into this national brand. No offense to the McKee family, of course, but Erskine's not wrong. We know that little girl on the package. She's iconic. But she's Debbie, not O.D. or Ruth McKee. So how do we come to associate this family with little Debbie? Remember at this point, the company was still selling cakes to bakeries without a label. So while Odie McKee was off looking for a way to make this brand stand out, a packaging supplier visited his office. His name was Bob Mosher. And Bob Mosher and Odie McKee begin to kind of exchange ideas on how that branding might look. And Bob Mosher says, well, listen, you know, what about the names of your grandkids? So Odie listed them off. Then Odie says, well, I've got Johnny and Linda and Debbie. And Bob Mosher says, oh, little Debbie, that has a ring to it. Little Debbie. Ellsworth's daughter. It was a light bulb moment. The girl you see on all the boxes? That's Odie and Ruth's granddaughter, Debbie, captured in time, just as she looked in 1960. And now, people around, everyone in the United States, or almost everyone in the United States, knows this little Debbie picture. It's one of the most iconic, you know, images in in American culture today. Um, All because of this one moment in Odie's office, uh, where he pulls out a picture On August 23rd, 1960, the brand was born. And the new branding was quite successful. There is this initial phase where they are selling Little Debbie's, the oatmeal cream pie, in a Little Debbie-branded family pack, and also selling them in a plain box that just says McKee or King's. And the Little Debbie's far outsell those that are in the the plain box. As Erskine says, this was a game-changer. It turns everything around. There's, this goes from a private label bakery in the 50s that is making cakes under the McKee Bakery label, or McKee Bakery is making the cakes, and King's Bakery is making the cakes under both names and sending them off to, to local bakeries for all of the 1950s. And then in 1960, 
this company doesn't about face and completely changes. Their profits went through the roof. They launched the family pack, and initially the family pack is, it's branded not as Little Debbie. It's branded as McKee or King's Bakery, and it sells. And OD realizes there is something here. You know, we need to capitalize on this family pack. You know, a family pack, a box of, say, a dozen or so cakes, all individually packaged and ready to stick in a lunchbox or purse. They went all in on snack cakes. And then you have to build this customer loyalty over a generation so that generations of kids today and adults as well can look back and have memories of having Little Debbie's in their lunch pails or having Little Debbie's, you know, on the work site or having Little Debbie's in the car on a road trip or at Christmas time and having Christmas cakes. Becoming a national brand, I think, was a really essential moment over the 1960s, but it's a household name and American icon much more after the 1960s because generations begin to have grown up with it. And they never looked back. It started a long, long time ago. Little Debbie's granddad woke up and said, you know, I think I'll make the world a treat. They made another big move in the 1980s. That decade, the company leapt into supermarkets and convenience stores, where we often see the snack cakes today. They got into the world of advertising, including memorable ads with impersonator Rich Little in the late 1980s. Little Debbie, the stuff great snacks are made of. And you don't have to be rich to love them. Today, Little Debbie has expanded its menu. Oatmeal cream pies. Swiss rolls galore. Zebra cakes. Nutty buddy. Honey bun. And more. Little Debbie is, is, is an icon that all Americans recognize. And even if all Americans haven't had it, you know, Americans recognize the Little Debbie image. And, you know, if you talk to people around the country, they will tell you, yes, I had Little Debbies at summer camp. Yes, I had Little Debbies in my lunchbox every day. Or yes, I had Little Debbies when I was taking my lunch break on the construction site. Over the next several decades, McKee Foods would grow, both in location and in revenue. Today, the company has more than $1 billion in annual sales and has moved on to a new generation of McKee ownership. Now the corporation's run by four of Ruth and Odie's grandchildren. It is the third generation of family ownership. Behind all the success was a great idea, of course, but it's also a couple that never stopped believing in the business and in each other. Everybody knows Little Debbie's. Um, and maybe they don't like them. Maybe they don't like the Nutty Bar, but maybe they like the oatmeal cream pie. There's so much of a variety that Little Debbie has something for everybody. But they have a snack for you. <laughs> if you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch the Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. 
Samantha Allison is our production manager. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound and fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.